It is a blessing to be back with you. Amen. It was a bit of a whirlwind trip, to be honest with you, over these last two weeks, and I'm so glad to be getting settled back in. We left in two cars, 3.30 on Monday, the 25th, to get Grant and Sydney to Minnesota so they could fly out and move to Puerto Rico. So we had... 12 suitcases, two dogs, and a cat. Their flight was canceled. The dogs got out all right. I didn't have to ask who let the dogs out. So we were back up at 3 the next morning to rush them back over to the airport. Their flight was scheduled first thing the next morning. And I'm thrilled to report, because there was a major blessing involved, I'm thrilled to report that Daisy the cat is no longer in the continental United States. And if, if, if we could run a lap in church, I guess we could. That's lap running material. Now, for those of you who may not fully understand my excitement. In car number one was Grant and Sydney, two dogs and a cat, and she sent an audio recording of Precious Daisy. You get the point. That is why I am so excited that Daisy the cat is no longer in our midst. I told you she was crazy. But get this, so Sydney gets on the flight, I think had two connections or whatever, and Daisy never made a peep. I wanted to wring that cat's neck. I knew it could behave. It just chose not to. There's probably a godly lesson somewhere, but do not try to convince me of what it is. I want to stay mad at that cat for as long as I can. After we saw them off in Minnesota on Tuesday, we drove to Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and there I was blessed to be invited to speak at the meeting in the air conference at Wildwood Baptist Church on Wednesday night. And as much as I enjoy preaching out, there's nothing like being here. Because y'all get me. Now, don't get me wrong. There was a good spirit. There was a lot of liberty in preaching. But they don't know that I'm an idiot right away. And so when I say something, they're wondering, is this guy for real? Is that supposed to be funny? Because it's not. True story. So... They handed me the microphone. I was the second speaker. And I 
was looking for a mirror to make sure, you know, <laughs> you know. And I walked into the restroom. I'm standing at the mirror, and I'm getting all wired up. And I've got to hurry up because they're singing right after that. I'm preaching. And this lady comes around the corner. There's no doors on the restroom. And she comes around. She peeks her head in the, in the <laughs> She goes, excuse me, sir, you're in the ladies' room. <laughs> All I saw was a mirror. I didn't look at what. That's how I represent our church. But while there, I got to meet up with Liberty Baptist Tabernacle's own Mike Petraco. And he's a rock star. When, when you meet up with Mike, you get backstage passes. And so I got the tour of their print facility, the church, and all of those things. Great time. And while at the air show, some of you have been around here long enough to remember the Inscos, um, they showed up at the air show. He's a pilot, got his own plane. And so I got to meet up with them for a little bit, say hello to them. We were stationed here years ago together. And uh, then Adrian and the kids left Thursday morning. They headed down to Georgia to see her parents. I lingered at the conference. And eventually I hooked up with their family in Georgia at her parents' house in Douglasville. We made our way over to Athens to see my parents. They took us up to Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, where we spent a couple days, and then I left from there. And um, anyway, Adrian's not quite as spiritual as me. Uh, I left to be home in time for church. I don't see her, do you? If you would pray for their safety, they're on their way. Um, now, listen, as much as I enjoy being blessed to travel, um, see family, there's no place like home. Amen. And I'm just saying, it's great to be back with you and back in the great state of South Dakota. I'd like to return to our series through the book of Genesis by going to Genesis chapter 3. Thank you for indulging me there. Genesis chapter 3. And we'll begin by reading verses 14 through 24. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam, he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. Let's go ahead and stop there. That's as far as we'll get. This morning, when people want to know where everything went wrong, Genesis 3 is the answer. 
Many try to blame God, but the fact is God's creation was perfect. It was mankind and his free will who decided to rebel against God, and as a result, sin not only entered the world, but it impacted the world. And now we live in a corrupted, sin-sick world, so much so that the Bible says even all of creation groaneth together until now. We've already covered verses 14 through 19. And while we're free to choose our sin, we don't get to choose our consequences. God gave His curse upon the serpent and Satan. Then God's sentence upon women. And finally, God's sentence upon men. Satan has been brought low. And while he did bruise Christ's feet, Satan got the victory. Women now have severe pain in childbearing. And the husband is now to rule over his wife. Men will now make ends meet in pain because the ground is cursed. And also remember that God said, If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt surely die. And now because of sin, death has passed upon all mankind. We are presently now in the process of dying. So glad you came this morning. We're all dying. We are in the process of returning back to the ground from whence we were created. And if the Lord doesn't return first, we all have an appointment with death and then judgment. But this chapter not only shows us where it all went wrong, but this chapter shows us how we can be made right with God. So by the time that one gets to the end of chapter 3... Any hopelessness should be dissolved by God's amazing grace. And I hope to communicate that to you as we go. Now as we come to verse 20 today, we have this interesting verse that to me really just seems to come out of nowhere. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. In verses 16 through 19, because of their sinfulness, we learned that our physical lives will be lived out in sorrow and labor, and we're told that we are going to die. And then verse 20, why this verse? What is it that we can learn from this verse? First, we find that Adam calls his wife's name Eve. I have mentioned in previous messages in this series that the ability to name someone means the one who is giving the name has dominion. God called the light day and the darkness He called night. God called the firmament heaven. God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters called He seas. And then after God created Adam, God gave dominion to mankind. And and as He did, God brought the animals unto Adam to see what He would call them, and whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. It was a picture of transferring the dominion. Then remember, after God made the woman from Adam's rib, God brought her to Adam and He said, She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Man is the Hebrew word ish. Woman is the Hebrew word ishah. In other words, Adam gave her his name, 
and they were one. You'll read an interesting verse in Genesis 5. In the day that God created man in the likeness of God, made he him, male and female created he them and blessed them, listen to this, and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. They shared a likeness. They were one, sharing even the same name. But because God brought Adam's helpmeet to him to name her before sin, God established the pre-fall male headship in a marriage. I've already covered this previously. And now after the fall, we find Adam names his wife again, and he changes her name to Eve. Why? Well, remember in verse 16, God said to the woman, Thy husband shall rule over thee. Which means that he would have dominion over her. And to show this being fulfilled in the post-fall, Adam calls his wife's name Eve. He exercises his rule over her just as God said that he should. This is God's design for the home, not man's. And I realize this kind of preaching is no longer popular, and maybe it never has been. But can I just encourage you to allow the Bible to say what it says, and don't add your whatabouts and your what-ifs to everything. Learn to let God be true, but every man a liar. In Adam renaming his wife Eve... And by her submitting to Adam's leadership, it shows that they both were paying attention to what God had just spoken to them. But I believe much more was heard than just this idea of male headship in the home. The name Eve means life giver, which is explained by the rest of the verse. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because... She was the mother of all living. Now, isn't this interesting? Immediately following God saying, you're going to die, Adam now is talking about life. You see, this verse goes far beyond them sitting down with a book of baby names and picking out what would sound like a cool name for his wife. (laughs) She wasn't like, yeah, Eve sounds pretty good. Let's go with that. As you know, in the Old Testament especially, names in the Bible have great meaning. By changing her name to Eve, Adam, and I believe Eve as well, they understood the importance of what God had spoken to them in verse 15, and they were now taking God at His word. The prophecy of the promised seed to come one day is what is given to us in verse 15, and that it was the only hope for their sin to be dealt with, and the only hope to have any sorrow turned into joy. But the only way for verse 15 to come to pass is for Eve to become the mother of all living. Though physical death would now come upon all men in that all have sinned, physical life will continue. And through this promised seed which would one day, 4,000 years later from this text, would one day be born of a woman in the fullness of time, 
death would then be swallowed up in victory and our sorrow could be turned into joy because of Christ. Christ essentially gives us a pass on the curse in a sense. Our bodies will still die. We'll still go through problems in this life. But through it all, we can understand I have eternal life and I can also have peace through the pain and the sorrow. 2 Timothy 1.10, But now is made manifest the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and mortality to light through the gospel. Therefore Adam calls his wife Eve, because she was not only going to be the first mother of all that are born, we're all of the same parents here this morning. Okay, that just got gross in my mind. Um, but also because she's going to be the first mother in the line which will bring the Lord Jesus Christ into the world, who will give His life as a sacrifice for our sins and free us from our trespasses and sins. In short, though they didn't have all the details, they believed the gospel by walking in the light that God had revealed to them. They placed their faith and trust in what God had promised to fulfill. And so while this verse here may seem like it comes out of nowhere, it's a very important verse. And it may seem like it's a little out of place, but this verse is exactly where it ought to be. Because I want you to understand this morning that without verse 20, you don't get verse 21. After seeing their faith in verse 20, and what God had just promised them about the promised seed to arrive, and knowing what we do about Bible salvation, then logically, what should happen after they have placed their faith in God's forgiveness for their sins, and what we should find next then is a covering for their sins. Did you place your faith and trust in Christ? Then you experience what it means to have your sins removed. And so now that they placed their faith and trust in what God had promised, now we're going to see the forgiveness of sins and we're going to see that they have a covering for their sinfulness. We find God's redemption. It says in verse 21, Unto Adam also and to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them? Now, in order for God to make coats of skin, it is implied that a sacrifice was made. God didn't go to the department store up in heaven and bring down furs. But God had to kill an animal. An animal cannot live without its skin. So we have a sacrifice taking place here. We aren't told what kind of animal it is. But as Genesis and really the rest of the Bible unfolds, we can assume that it was most likely a lamb. We'll see in the opening chapter, in the opening of chapter 4, Abel brings an offering that God accepted. We're told over in chapter 4 that Abel was a keeper of sheep and that he brought the firstlings of his flock. He brought a lamb and God accepted that. And it makes sense that he would have learned that from Adam who would have learned that from God's example. That's really neither here nor there, but 
I touched on this verse while we were in verse 7, but since that was seven messages ago and three months ago, I'll mention some of the same thoughts. Remember in verse 7, after their sin, Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together, made themselves aprons to cover their nakedness. And this is an example of people who are trying to make themselves right in the sight of God by trusting in their own works. Before sin, there were no clothes because there was no shame. So really, clothes are a reminder that we're sinners. Perhaps we don't look at it that way, but that's really what it is. Maybe that's why people are dressing less and less today in America because they don't recognize their sinfulness. Well, that's just a thought. Notice in verse 7 how it says, they made themselves aprons. But here in verse 21, it says, the Lord God made coats of skins to clothe them. In verse 7, we see that man is doing all the work. In verse 21, it is God who is doing all the work. And God is letting them know, you cannot be right in my sight by standing before me in the clothing that you have made by your own works. God says, I cannot accept that. God then says, I will clothe you. And then then you will be acceptable in my sight. This is key to understanding redemption. And we, we must ask ourselves, what did this animal do wrong? And the answer is it did nothing wrong. And yet its blood was shed. It was an innocent substitute. But notice what God did with the sacrifice of this animal. He took from the animal and He transferred from it to Adam and to Eve. God took the animal skins, made them clothing, and clothed them. God transfers from the sacrifice to them. Now, why does God do it this way? Why can't God just excuse their sin by saying, well, they're just kids acting up. I know they're just going through a phase right now. They're going to grow out of it. After all, boys will be boys. Whatever phrase you want to use. Why, why, does, why doesn't God just take that approach? Why does there have to be a sacrifice? Well, it's because of God's nature. God is holy. Amen. And this is something we must make sure we're emphasizing when we're witnessing to other people. We cannot ignore God's holiness. Yes, we understand God is love. Hallelujah. God extends mercy and grace, but do not leave out God's holiness. We find in Isaiah 6.3 and Revelation 4.8 that there are four seraphim surrounding God's throne which rest not day and night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Because God is holy, He cannot ignore sin. Or else He would go against His character. And once we grasp this reality, the reality of God's holiness, will begin to understand why judgment must be passed upon sin. Now how is it that God can punish sin and let a sinner go free by forgiving their sin, all while maintaining His holiness? 
God can only pull this off by offering an innocent sacrifice in our place. Now keep in mind what a big deal this is here in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have never seen death, not physical death. Nothing has died ever. And here comes God on the scene and He sacrifices an innocent animal in their place. Do you understand, this would have been a very gruesome process for them to see. We're a very desensitized society. This would have been something that hopefully would have shocked their system a little bit to go, whoa, what is taking place here? Why does this have to happen this way? And what God is teaching them is that their sin was very costly. They were learning that forgiveness of sin is possible, but that it must come at the cost of an innocent life. May we all come to understand that sin is not just a bad moral decision, but it is a horrendous offense against a holy God. Sin is severe, and it necessitates an innocent substitute to die in our place. What we find in verse 21 is a clear representation of the gospel. Hopefully you're picking up on that. Here is the beginning of God revealing how He is going to deal with sin and forgiveness of sin without violating His character. We're getting a glimpse of this all the way back in the garden. This is why the Bible is such a bloody book. Hebrews 9.22 says, And without shedding of blood, there is no remission. God requires blood. You ought to run from the preacher that never preaches the blood. They're out there, and I can name names, then you'll know them. So what we learn from verse 21 is that God must do all the work. There must be an innocent sacrificial substitute where blood is shed. And then there will be a shocking revelation of the horrors of that sacrifice. And then a transfer is made from the sacrifice to the sinner, and it's all a free gift of God. We need to understand that ultimately it was not the animal sacrifice which is redeeming Adam and Eve. Hebrews 10.4 is clear, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. The animal that God sacrificed was only a picture of Christ and His sacrifice to come. And that's what they were placing their faith and trust in, as I covered in verse 20. When Jesus showed up to be baptized by John the Baptist, when John saw Him approaching His way, He said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John was letting all know the perfect sacrifice they long awaited for had finally arrived. And from that we are meant to understand when John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And we're talking about God's only begotten Son, 
when John makes that declaration, we are meant to understand that it would be God Himself that would take our place, pay our sin debt that we could never pay. Say, how can God do that? He robed Himself in flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you got to believe Christ was God in the flesh. Without that, do you even have biblical salvation? It takes a perfect sacrifice, and there's only one that's perfect, that's God. Our salvation would have to be a work of God alone. Listen, you can't do enough good works to be saved. You can't be baptized enough. We have one this morning. I could baptize them every week. Listen, you can't work enough. You can't be baptized enough. You can't join enough churches. We can't be religious enough. But only God is the sole provider of our salvation. You say, boy, that makes it sound like it's Christ plus nothing. Yeah. Next, Jesus would have to be an innocent, sinless sacrifice. Hebrews 7.26 declares Jesus is holy and undefiled. 1 Peter 2.22 says that Jesus did no sin. 1 John 3.5 says, And you know that He was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. The only acceptable sacrifice for God would be a sinless sacrifice, and Jesus lived a sinless life, fulfilling the law, all for the purpose of going to the cross and being our sacrifice. As our sacrifice, Jesus' blood would have to be shed. We know that happened through the scourging, the crown of thorns being pressed into His head, being nailed to a cross. And then even after He laid down His life, a soldier pierced Him in the side and there came out blood and water. Now I think most of you this morning, you have a head knowledge of everything I just explained. You understand that Christ is the innocent Lamb of God that He went to the cross in your place and shed His blood for you. But what I would like to know is, have you seen, or or maybe has the violent, torturous death of Christ gripped your heart? This was a shock to them, what what they were seeing. God with bloody hands. Does it shock you that God Almighty would die in your place? And listen, I think this is important for an independent Baptist church to hear because so many of you grew up in church and you know the right answers and you understand when to nod, you know when to say amen, raise your hand, take a lap. <laughs> None of y'all did that for the cat. All of you, you, you understand this for the most part. Have you grasped that God chose to offer you salvation by pouring out His wrath upon His only begotten Son, who was sinlessly innocent. It was God's love that caused Him to pour out His wrath upon the just one. And if this truth will ever grip your heart... You will run to Him for salvation. And you'll stop wondering, 
well, I just don't know. Maybe I do have to have works. Maybe I do have to add baptism. Maybe I do need to be in this church. Maybe I do need to do this thing. Listen, if you'll, if you'll grasp the, the horrendous death of our Lord, that it was God Almighty who was dying in your place, you'll begin to understand there's nothing I can add to this thing. Why did God have to do it this way? Because Jesus' sinless sacrifice was the only way that God could simultaneously satisfy His wrath, His punishment for sin, and His love for mankind to be able to forgive sinners and let them go away free without ever violating His character. While preparing for this, I heard an example of a man who was a judge. This is an illustration. And he was known that his sentences were always the maximum sentence. This judge did not play around. And he would always give them maximum sentences, and then one day his son came in. What's the judge going to do? Is he going to violate his character and give his son a lesser punishment? And so what he did was he gave his son the maximum punishment. Slammed down the gavel. And then he stood up from behind the bench, took off his judicial robes, and walked over to the bailiff and said, now take me in his place. And I'll take his punishment. And that's how he satisfied his character. That's how he was able to maintain who he was. Why did God do it this way? Because he had to. I want you to understand, this is true Christianity. Now, once you do this, once you understand how guilty you are before God, once you understand Jesus shed His precious blood for you, and when you are shocked by the fact that God would die in your place, then once you place your faith and trust in that, a transfer takes place. Just as God took the skin from the animal to make Adam and Eve acceptable coverings. Now, now listen, we're blessed. We're under the new covenant. Our sins aren't just covered. They're washed away. Amen. Whoop! Amen. So they're looking forward to Christ, but, and, and they're just having an atonement and a covering. But we have a removal of our sins. But what God does is He removes the sinfulness of our own efforts, and then He takes the righteousness which was upon Christ, He transfers that to us without ever diminishing Christ's own righteousness. Isaiah 61.10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For He hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robes of righteousness. Philippians 3.9 And be found in Him not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the, the righteousness which is of God by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. You see, it's imputed righteousness, which means Christ's righteousness is placed on our account. And when this happens, God no longer sees your fig leaves, but He sees the righteous covering of the blood of His Son. And we become joint heirs with Christ. 
We are justified by His blood according to Romans 5.9. It doesn't matter if you feel like it all the time. Somebody say amen. Yes. You're going to stumble and fall. Amen. Righteous man falleth seven times, but he gets back up. You, you, listen, you're going to battle the flesh. We understand that. But what I'm talking about, it, it doesn't matter if you feel like it. It doesn't matter if you're perfect. But when you've been washed in the blood, God no longer sees you, but He sees Christ, and you are secure. Preacher, you believe in once saved, always saved? I sure do. I couldn't earn it, and I'm not good enough to keep it. You cannot stand clean before God, clothed in any of your own righteousness. But if you're going to stand before God clean and right with Him, be counted as righteous, you must be clothed in His righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Did you catch what was said there? God did not say all of your unrighteousnesses are as filthy rags, but all of your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. All that we do that man applauds and all of our own works-based religion and all of our observances are really nothing before God when it comes to the matter of being saved. A transfer must take place. And then finally, the forgiveness of sins and the inheritance of salvation, it is all a free gift of God. After Jesus willingly took the wrath of God in our place on the cross, He cried out, It is finished. Then He gave up the ghost. You know what's great about that phrase, it is finished, is it's an an accounting term, which means paid in full. God said, It is paid in full. Nothing can be added. Nothing can be taken away. It's complete. It's finished. It's paid in full. And it's free. In closing, sin must be punished. And I hope you understand, I would not be rightly dividing the Word of God this morning if I did not tell you that you either accept Christ, His sacrifice for your sins in your place, You either accept that or you'll spend an eternity in the lake of fire. I do not say that with a smile on my face. And I do not say that casually. God will not allow sin to go unpunished. Now this is the sobering truth of God's Word and it's not my opinion. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-10 The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe in that day. Revelation 20.15, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Say, how do I get my name in the book of life? You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You stop trusting in your own works. You don't have to fear that day if you've accepted God's free salvation because the punishment for your sins has already been paid. So have you, and, and listen, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Examine yourself. See whether you be in the faith. Have you experienced the miraculous transfer that takes place with the new birth? Can you honestly say that this morning? Can you say with a clear conscience before God, I know that I am His and I know that He is mine. I like this song. It says, His heart was broken, mine was mended. As I read this, think about the transfer. His heart was broken, mine was mended. He became sin, now I am clean. The cross He carried bore my burden. The nails that held Him set me free. His scars of suffering brought me healing. He shed His blood to fill my soul. His crown of thorns made me royalty. His sorrow gave me joy untold. He was despised and rejected, stripped of His garments and oppressed. I am loved and accepted and I wear a robe of righteousness. His life for mine. His life for mine. How can it ever be that He would die? God's Son would die to save a wretch like me. What love divine He gave His life for mine. If you don't know what that's like, I invite you to get that settled this morning. Will you pray with me, please?